Just two years after the end of the Great War, a group of French mourners led by the President of France approached a large concrete shelter sited over a trench where Poilus, French soldiers, had died in 1916. What was the story of the Trench of Bayonets? On a cold December day in 1920, a crowd, including the President of France, gathered in that barren, desolate landscape close to the city of Verdun. Verdun, the symbol of France's struggle in the Great War, the longest battle of the Great War with 300 days and 300 nights of combat and more than 770,000 French and German casualties there in 1916. Just a few short years after the end of the war, the landscape at Verdun had yet to recover. The people who stood there on that December day could see the valleys and the ravines. But on that December day, in the winter months, it was quite apparent that the moonscape that Verdun once had been was pretty much still there. As far as the eye could see, there were shell craters and parts of the Verdun battlefield, perhaps as many as a thousand shells fell for every square metre. It was certainly one of the most devastating and devastated battlefields of the Great War, and the experience of men on both sides who went through it and survived, they were never quite the same after Verdun. But here on this smashed, almost alien landscape in 1920, this was not just the meeting of a president and his people to remember the whole battle. They were coming together to remember a specific episode of that battle which somehow came to symbolise the sacrifice there at Verdun in 1916. They were coming to inaugurate a modernist concrete structure that stood like a beacon in that landscape, stood before them as they arrived in their cars, walked through the concrete entrance in the trench-like approach to where the shelter was and that shelter covered the grave of French soldiers who had fallen on this battlefield in June of 1916. The casual visitor amongst the crowd could have been forgiven for thinking that the concrete structure which they approached was some kind of wartime bunker, but with its sharp edges, its stark concrete and its concrete columns, like columns of a modernist temple, it was a memorial commemorating the war rather than a remnant of the war itself. So what is the true story of the Tranchée de Bayonnettes, the Trench of Bayonnettes? When I made my first visit to Verdun in the summer of 1987, this was on the top of my list of places to visit because I'd been reading about this part of the Great War for many years, probably since I was a child. I remember picking up American magazines in the 70s and reading about anything from a, a French regiment to a battalion to a company of men disappearing into the mud of Verdun, being buried alive in their trench, hundreds if not thousands of soldiers completely covered over and all that was left was their bayonet sticking out of the earth. What remained of this, I wondered, what was the truth behind it? And that's one of the places that I headed to in that first trip of 87. And when I went there, I came away really then no wiser because the structure was still there, this impressive concrete modernist structure, the concrete a little greyer than it appears on the contemporary photographs, and I've put some of those 
onto the podcast website where it looks like a bright white gleaming object on that smashed landscape of Verdun. But there was nothing really to say much about the story of what had happened there. There was a memorial to a regiment, the 137th Regiment of Infantry. There were crosses underneath the shelter. I remember on that very first visit in the 80s, there were some remains of bayonets. But what was the story? And that's what we hope to uncover in this podcast. Firstly, we'll turn to the newspaper reporting of the unveiling, the inauguration of the Trench of Bayonets Memorial in December of 1920. Although this is purely a French story, it hit the British press for a number of reasons. Even in Britain during the Great War, the symbolism of Verdun was not lost on the British population. There had been days to raise money for the French war cause, to help the Poilus in the trenches, and Poilu, bearded one, the hairy one, that is a phrase that you see being used even in the British press during that Great War period. And even while the year 1916, from the British perspective, was dominated, of course, by the events in the Battle of the Somme, what was happening at Verdun could not be ignored either. And it's interesting to see how many children born in 1916, when you look this up on sites like Ancestry, how many of them were given the name Verdun in honour of that great French battle. So it was in the British psyche, I think, even then. So when we turn to the newspapers of December 1920, we find quite a few reports of this ceremony at this memorial at the site of the Trench of Bayonets. The graphic, for example, reported, In memory of France's heroic Poilus, a memorial has been erected over a trench in which a company of Poilus, while standing with fixed bayonets ready to repel a German attack, were submerged by an avalanche of earth caused by explosions. So there we have probably the first statement in English describing the events of what happened there. A group of soldiers, in this case they say a company, holding a trench, waiting to stand fast against a German assault on their positions and they get hit by a bombardment and it buries them alive. Many other newspapers of that December 1920 period covered almost an identical story and the Nottingham Evening Post reported that the US ambassador was present at the ceremony. He said, The monument may decay, but Verdun and what it signified would live forever. What was the US ambassador doing there? Well, America had, of course, fought at Verdun in 1918, but this was not commemorating an American battle. The reason he was there is that an American millionaire, who we'll discuss further into the podcast, had given the money for this memorial to be built in this site of the Trench of Bayonets to be preserved for all time. And it's clear when you read the newspapers of that period that this story captured the imagination of a wider public and it became that symbol of sacrifice, of defiance, French defiance at Verdun against those German attacks. And if I guess there was one place that people could name connected to the Verdun battlefield in that period, it would be the Trench of Bayonets as a consequence of the construction of this memorial. And when you filter your way through those newspaper reports, even then there is a big discrepancy about what happened. Was it a regiment? Was it a battalion? Was it a company? And that's what we're going to hope to achieve in this by doing our own little investigation, really, into the Trench of Bayonets. What was the story of that trench? 
What was the story of the men who fought there and died there? How many of them died and how many of them remained buried in that trench and how many are there there today? And we'll ask ourselves, was the trench of bayonets really such a myth? Putting the myths to one side, what can we find to tell us the real story of the Trench of Bayonets? One of the things that I first picked up when I went to Verdun in 1987 was a small booklet. I remember seeing it in quite a lot of the museums for sale then and in some of the shops in Verdun, which still sold picture postcards of the battlefields dating back to that same period of the 1920s. They obviously produced a lot of this kind of tourist material, guidebooks, maps, postcards, to sell to the huge number of visitors that came to Verdun in that interwar period in the 1920s and 30s, and even in the 80s and 90s when I made my first decade of visits to Verdun, a lot of this stuff was still available to buy. And I would guess, I remember seeing a kind of modern edition version of this little booklet for sale in the Memorial at Fleury, and possibly in the forts as well. Whether it's still for sale now, I don't know. But it's a little tiny booklet that was produced for visitors to give them a bit of information about what the Trench of Bayonets was. It's called La Tranchée de Bayonnette, Son Histoire, The Trench of Bayonets, Its History. It's a 32-page little booklet, published obviously in French in Paris, sometime in the early 20s. There's no author shown, And is it a reliable source? Well, it was certainly read by a huge number of people in that period of the 1920s and 30s. So what does it tell us? First of all, it establishes the regiment that is connected to this site, the one whose memorial I saw when I first went there. That's the 137th Regiment of Infantry. And we see that it dates us to a period of June of 1916, and specifically in a period of around the 10th, 11th, and particularly the 12th of June of 1916, when the fighting was at its fiercest in this particular part of the Verdun battlefield. Who were the 137th Regiment of Infantry? A regiment of infantry in the French army is different to a British regiment, different to a British battalion. It's kind of its own brigade in some ways in terms of its strength. It's about 3,500 soldiers made up of three battalions. It's commanded by a lieutenant colonel. Each of the battalions is commanded by a commandant equivalent of a British major and then there are four companies in each of those battalions. In terms of its higher formation to which it reported to, to which it was commanded by, above it was a brigade which consisted of two of these regiments and a French division consisted of two brigades. So that means that the average French infantry division at full strength, its infantry component was about 14,000 men which was slightly higher than the equivalent British formation. But a French regiment, like British regiments, like British units, it had its own identity. They were locally raised, they had barracks in particular areas, and initially they drew men from specific parts of France. So the 137th Regiment of Infantry was recruited from the Breton-Vendée areas of France, and the men particularly those who fought here at Verdun, were from those regions of France. It had fought, like most French regiments, at the Marne in 1914, that great battle around Paris, then on the Somme in 1915, 
And if you've been to places like Serre, there was a position there known as Touvon Farm, and in the Battle of serre Hebuturn in June of 1915, the 137th Regiment of Infantry was one of those who took part in that action there. Later that year, they moved down for the Great Offensive in the Champagne in September of 1915, and then to the Verdun sector, where they fought in the ground close to Dourmont. That was over to their right flank, Fort Dourmont, the village of Dourmont. They were closer, though, to the Ferme de Thiermont, and the Ouvrage de Thiermont. Now, an Ouvrage was a, a smaller system of French defences, a kind of earthworks position. And the Ouvrage de Thiermont is right by the ossuary at Douaumont today. If you've been there, you might have wandered over to see this shell-pocked ground that's been preserved, free of trees, where there are positions, bunkers, as well as the defensive positions that were used to defend that ground in 1916. And these ouvrages, of which there were quite a few scattered across the Verdun battlefield, were all part of the system of defences that were placed on that battlefield before the Great War. So returning to the booklet, which has identified the regiment that we're interested in that is connected to this story, it tells us that the 137th Regiment of Infantry were holding a precarious position near the Ferme de Thiamont, with two companies up defending their forward positions, machine guns on the flanks of those companies, giving them protective machine gun fire, and that prisoners have been taken in a raid on the German positions, identifying them as Bavarian troops and indicating from those prisoners that a German attack was imminent. The account in the booklet then says that German shell fire intensified on the positions held by the 137th Regiment of Infantry, and then at 5.30 in the morning, a German attack by these Bavarian troops pushed through the ravine that was located beneath the forward companies of the 137th towards positions held by these company troops that were commanded by a young lieutenant, Lieutenant Polyman. His machine guns supporting his company positions swept the ravine, causing heavy losses to the German troops who were advancing over that open ground. If you're on a a position at the top of a hill, essentially, and you've got automatic fire machine guns to protect you, and your men are dug in and the enemy is advancing over open ground in the half-light of day at half past five in the morning in June, probably visibility would have been pretty good. It would have turned that ravine, that valley, into a kill zone for the German troops trying to get through there. And so those attacks were initially repulsed. Polyman noted that there was an intensity of shell fire at this point and then infiltration troops on their front had got through some of the positions in his company sector. And with a foothold in the French positions, the Germans then sent forward wave after wave of assault, gradually trying to break down the defensive positions that were here. Artillery, German artillery, then devastated the positions held by Polyman's men and many of his soldiers were caught in this devastating bombardment, resulting in a high number of them being posted as missing in action in some areas, some positions that he knew were held by his men, he had no idea of what had happened to them. Could this have led to what happens with the trench of bayonets? Reading onwards into this booklet, we discover that finally Polyman and his positions were overrun by the Germans, the machine gun company, realising that the end was very close, dismantled their weapons, smashed the breech blocks and the other bits of equipment to make sure that the guns could not be used by the enemy, and then the position was completely overrun. But what of the trench of bayonets? What of this position held by 
whatever it was, a battalion or a company of men, it's clear just reading this booklet that we're talking about a much smaller unit, a company of French troops that would number a couple of hundred men. I think at full strength, it's around about 250 officers and men. So what of that? I think that in the confusion of battle and the fact that the remaining men of this company of the 137th were overrun, including Polyman, and taken prisoner, then the story at the time of what happened to these men was not really known or was certainly not conveyed to the French authorities. The survivors of the battle went into captivity. They became prisoners of war for the next two years. And so initially, really, the story was lost. So the booklet only tells us part of the story. It goes on to what was discovered after the war, and we'll come to that later. But continuing to look at the wartime story of things, the next source that we'll turn to is the JMOs, the war diaries, the journaux de marche et opération, the official war diaries kept by the French army in the Great War. And the fantastic thing about these is they're all available online for free. The French government digitised all of the war diaries during the Great War centenary period. And you can go on to the government website, and I'll put the links to this on the podcast website for you, and you can look up these diaries. Now, obviously, they are in French, and most of them are handwritten, so they're quite difficult to really read unless you're used to that style of handwriting. It's an older version of the French language, and there are a few things that don't easily translate at times. Quite a few people have transcribed diaries, and there are some sites, including one for the 137th, where the war diary has been transcribed and typed up and put online, and it's easier to read. And if you can't read French, you can then cut and paste that into Google Translate or one of the other translators and at least get a sense of what the text is talking about. Although I've noticed that comparing some of my own translations with what Google does, often there are some differences. But nevertheless, it's quite a useful source and the war diaries are packed full of information. Now, as with all war diaries, you know, I've seen this with German war diaries, British war diaries, and now with French ones, they aren't always 100% accurate, particularly when there are heavy losses in a unit and there aren't enough survivors really to relay the true story of what has happened. So they're just one source. They're not the only source. They're not the source. They're one of the sources that we can consult. And looking at that source for this story, we find out more about where the positions were held by the 137th during this battle here in June of 1916. The war diary tells us that they were holding positions on the slopes of the Ravine de la Dame, near to Tiaumont Farm, and with a headquarters, a regimental headquarters, back at PC 119. Poste de Commandement 119, headquarters 119, was a concrete bunker which is still there today. You can walk into that part of the Verdun Forest to see the bunker. It's one of a number of these PCs which are given a number to them. Each of them are individually numbered that you can find on different parts of the Verdun battlefield. So that was kind of behind their regimental positions and their forward area was overlooking that ravine with Tiamont Farm close by. Behind them was the 403rd Regiment of Infantry who were holding the Ouvrage de Tiamont. And the war diary also mentions that they'd taken Bavarian prisoners and that they gave up the information that a German attack was coming. It describes the heavy bombardment of the regiment's positions. 
and some battalions within the 137th lose up to 50% of their strength in these German artillery bombardments. Now, when you look at the Battle of Verdun, you read any book on it, you will discover that it was a battle of artillery, that the field gun, the heavy howitzer, even the railway gun and the shells that they fired were the kings and queens of this battlefield. That's how it ended up being so devastated by this artillery fire and how there were parts of the battlefield where, as we've said, over a thousand shells fell for every square metre. The diary reports that wave after wave of assaults from the Germans came through that ravine de la Dame, but it, they turned it, the defenders of the positions, turned it into that killing zone. But as they did so, and inflicted heavy losses on the German attackers, the bombardments intensified. And when you read the war diary, you can see, you can almost sense the chaos and confusion on that part of the battlefield where the men are holding temporary, probably shallow trenches, positions that are not necessarily clearly marked on a map. They're near to a ravine, they've got a farm close by, the Germans are pressing hard, bombardments are coming down, fixed communications are probably lost under those circumstances, and when positions are overrun, it becomes even more confusing as to what has really happened. And what is interesting that it doesn't mention is this idea that a group of men have been buried alive, that there was a trench defended by a company or a battalion of the regiment that had been so heavily bombarded that the men had all been killed in their trench. There's no mention of that at all. This is a contemporary document. Because of that chaos and confusion, it's quite clear that the regimental commander, the colonel and his adjutant and his regimental staff probably would not initially have had any idea of that and those men would have been reported amongst the missing. And it is the casualty list at the end of that part of the war diary that gives us an indication as to the true scale of the losses that the 137th had suffered in this battle of just a couple of days here in June of 1916. And we're not talking about one of the great attacks. It's typical of the attritional nature of Verdun is that there were lots of these minor actions going on, attacks for the possession or repossession of one of these ravines, of a bit of high ground overlooking one of these ravines, the remains of a farm, a command position, a bunker, whatever it was. It wasn't just about the big forts like Dormont and Vaux, or the ouvrages like Tiamont or Foiterre. It was much more than that. And one of the things that I've always been conscious of every time I've walked the ground at Verdun going through the forest tracks, coming out in these areas where you can see the remains of trenches and shell holes and positions. I'm conscious of the fact that almost every glade, every turn, every junction of rides in that forest has its own story. And of course, that's what makes it fascinating to visit, to research and understand. But coming back to that war diary... The casualty list for that period of June 1916 is very telling in terms of the losses. It shows a substantial number of killed and wounded, but most interestingly, dozens of officers and NCOs and over 800 men missing. So aside from those reported killed in action or wounded in action, nearly the equivalent of an entire battalion was missing in that regiment. And if we look at the, the total figures, it's 64 killed, 329 wounded and 812 missing. 
and while the diary does not record exactly how many men were holding the line during that action around the Ravine de la Dame in June of 1916, I would guess that those casualties, which number nearly 1,200 officers and men killed, wounded and missing, probably account for at least 50% of the men who were in the line, perhaps a lot more. And in certain companies, it may have been a much higher percentage of those who became casualties. So the war diary has given us a more precise location. It's given us an insight into the casualties that were suffered by the regiment in the fighting around this ground. We can then turn as well to the historique, the regimental history of the 137th Regiment of Infantry. Now, almost every regiment, I can't say every regiment did, but almost every regiment of the French army published some kind of pamphlet or history after the war. When I lived in France, I used to collect these. There are some really fantastic examples of regimental histories that were published in French about these French units in the 1920s and 30s. Sometimes only a thin little pamphlet outlining the regiment's history, perhaps listing the honours and awards. They don't always include casualty lists because if you think that they are regimental history, so they're covering regiments that consisted of 3,500 men at full strength, four years of war with that many men, the casualty lists would have been seemingly endless to publish in a little booklet. But there are others that are incredibly detailed and give us fascinating insights into the experience of French troops in the Great War. And another World War I centenary project was to digitise these, and I think almost all of the ones that were published are available online as PDFs. Sometimes they're scanned in their original content and then placed as digital images that you can download. Sometimes people have transcribed them and put them online, and again that means you can cut and paste the text if you don't speak French and put that through a translator. And I hope one of the things that you'll take away from this podcast is how easy it is to research the French army and even if you don't speak French, turn that into something meaningful that you can understand so that when you go to places like Verdun or the other French battlefields of the Great War, you can actually research and understand and discover a lot more about the places that you visit. So coming to the historique, and I'll put a link to that online as well, the one for the 137th Regiment of Infantry was published in Paris in 1920, not long after the end of the Great War, and that's a common period for when these historiques were published, were written and published in France. It's a summary history, but there is a longer account of what had become, even by then, their most famous chapter of the Great War. They call it the Glorious Episode. The regimental history, therefore, gives us quite a detailed account of what happens at these positions in June of 1916. The 137th clung to the ground. On June the 11th and 12th, after a hurricane of iron and fire, with three quarters of the unit annihilated, they faced the enemy. The 1st and 3rd battalions are surrounded. They resist with fierce energy, with grenades, with bayonet. Commander Deneff of the 1st battalion counterattacks, revolver in fist, with the handful of men he has left, and falls crying, Forward for France! Sub-Lieutenant de Canalis, surrounded, refuses to surrender and dies riddled with bullets. The third company, under the orders of 2nd Lieutenant Polyman, reduced to a third of its strength, resists for 26 hours, using the cartridges of the dead around them. 
By June the 14th, Relief Day, the regiment had lost 37 officers, 133 non-commissioned officers and 1,367 corporals and soldiers. So this regimental history published after the war gives us an even greater casualty list for the action here than the war diary had done written at the time. What it does do, most interestingly, is give us a bit of an insight into how the trench of bayonets, the legend, the myth, the reality, actually came into being. On June the 11th and 12th, 1916, the Bosch captured the Tiamont battery. The first line that was defending this important position was a small ridge. Two battalions of the 137th held this trench. On June the 11th, the bombardment that preceded the German attack was so appalling that it buried in their trench almost all of these two battalions. These heroes did not want to flee. They remained standing, rifles straight in their hands, ready to fight the onslaught of the Bosch. The trench is today marked out by a line of rifle barrels, almost vertical, rising 20 to 30 centimetres above the level of the earth which filled in the excavation. These straight rifles are still held by the clenched hands of the heroes, buried upright in their trenches. Nothing is more moving or more sublime than the hymn of glory that comes out of this alignment of rifle muzzles pointed towards the sky. Now in that account, it does claim that battalions were buried alive, and I think that when you look at the scale of the missing, perhaps that's what exaggerated this view of what had really happened. But there, in print, just a few short years after the end of the Great War, we at least have a bit of insight into the history of what unfolded in that position. And we also, from this regimental history, this historique, learn more about Lieutenant Polymer and his bravery in this action. What we find is a citation for his bravery award. Called to take command of a company at a most critical moment, he exercised this with admirable firmness. After a formidable bombardment, while the enemy surrounded the remains of his company, he resisted to the end, shouting to his men, In the third company, we don't surrender. So it's clear from all the different accounts that Polyman is very much part of this story. Who was he? Angeli Lucien Polymer was born in 1890 in the Meuse département. He was a farmer's son who'd studied at Verdun before the war, studied in a town that a few short years later would be the place, the location of not just France's defining moment in the Great War, one of his own defining moments in that conflict. He'd been ordained as a priest in 1913, but he didn't become a chaplain when the war broke out. He enlisted as an officer in the 137th Regiment of Infantry in 1914. And in that fighting where his company was overrun, he'd been promoted as a young lieutenant to take over command of a company. He'd stepped into the shoes of a man who'd become a casualty prior to that. What happened when his position was overrun is that he and many others were taken prisoner and he spent the next two years in Germany as a POW. He was decorated with the Légion d'honneur for his bravery and the Croix de Guerre, and later he re-enlisted in the French army in 1939 and fought in the battles of 1940 against the German invasion. But after the capitulation, the surrender of France, following the Battle of France and the defeat of France by Nazi Germany, 
he was one of those who joined the Vichy government and he was arrested and imprisoned in 1945 for his part in that Vichy government. It's fair to say that this is not unlike many other French people of that period who saw France in defeat in 1940 and then cooperation, collaboration with the Germans as the only possible outcome. It's not excusing some of the things that the Vichy government did. I mean, some of my own ancestors died, French ancestors died as a consequence of the German occupation and the activities of the Vichy government by being sent off to concentration camps. So it's not excusing it, but it's understanding it. And many French men like him who had served in the Great War, Pétain, of course, is another example that's worthy of a podcast in its own right, they felt that this was the only way forward for France in defeat in 1940. But unlike Pétain, whose streets and buildings and memorials were all taken down or renamed after the Second World War when he was considered to be a traitor of France, Polymer did not suffer the same fate and his name still appears, rightly so, in all of the accounts of this battle here in 1916. So we've seen from these three different sources some of the history of the Trench of Bayonets, from the little booklet through to the war diaries through to the regimental history. But when the war ended, Polyman was on his way back from Germany. Other veterans who'd witnessed the event were being demobilised. It would seem that somehow the story might be forgotten. But there on the battlefield, the remains of the dead, they were still there. The bayonets were still there. So what happened next for this story to be lifted from the pages of history and to be enshrined in a permanent memorial that would stay there for all time? What led to the trench of bayonets being just words on a page to become a memorial? The story had already become famous as the war drew to a close. There were many of these stories that were published in the French press to symbolise this sacrifice that France made at places like Verdun. And when the war was over, Colonel de Bonnefoy of the 137th returned to the battlefield where his regiment had fought in 1916. This was nearly three years later in January 1919 and he would have found the landscape desolate after four years of war, only a few months away from recent fighting when the Americans had fought at Verdun in October and November of 1918. But with his maps, with his knowledge, with his remembrance of that ground, he found the battlefield where his regiment had fought and he found a position that identified a trench with bayonets sticking out of it where there was clearly a burial. Now I think when the colonel first went there and saw this, I don't think he immediately thought that this was a trench in which every man from that unit who was missing was buried in. When I first read about this story, it resonated with me because of an episode in Charlie's War, that comic from the 1980s, which told the story of a young British soldier, Charlie Bourne, and in one of the episodes he talks to a soldier who is crying out about the forest of Thiepval, and he says there wasn't a forest at Thiepval, and what it was was the soldiers who had fallen in an attack there their bodies were marked by upturned rifles pushed into the ground by their bayonets with their helmets on top to show where the stretcher bearers were 
so they could be picked up and be carried back. And there was this forest of rifles across the battlefield where so many had been hit. Now that's a British story on a British battlefield. But what the colonel, I think, when he went back in 1919 may have thought is that these bayonets had been used to mark a provisional burial ground. This was, of course, a position that had been overrun by the Germans and it was common on both sides of the battlefield to bury the dead once a position was taken because you didn't want your positions to be surrounded by rotting corpses because that would lead to disease and sickness and would be very uncomfortable and awful for the troops holding those positions as well with the smell of it. And you see truces on battlefields come about because there is this necessity to bury the dead. And this attack was in June of 1916, so in the high summer of that year, when the heat would have contributed to the awful smell that would have been on this battlefield. So perhaps in his mind he thought the Germans have captured this position, they've found dead soldiers from his regiment, and they've buried them in a position and marked it with bayonets. Now, his thoughts are not recorded, so that's supposition on my part, but an experienced regimental commander who had seen many battles and experienced much of this himself probably would have come to that kind of conclusion. And part of the reason, part of the task going there was to recover the dead of his regiment and ensure that they had a decent burial. So an excavation begins and it finds human remains. Now, not human remains laid down in a trench grave like the Devonshire Cemetery at Mametz, for example. These are men, it appears, who are indeed in their trench, holding their weapons, buried by the bombardment. So this is where the kind of nucleus of the myth, the reality of the trench of bayonets comes about. There is an episode where a trench is hit by artillery fire. Quite a few of the accounts talk about how soft the earth was. It was almost like soup. And when the shells hit, it pushed all this loose, soft earth up, came straight down onto the trench that these soldiers were in and buried them alive. And the excavation in 1919 showed that in one part of the battlefield, that was certainly true. But it wasn't a battalion, it wasn't battalions, it wasn't even a company. And that when they excavated it completely, the number of men who were actually buried there did not match the number of bayonets. There were more bayonets than men. So it's not battalions, it's not companies, it's sections of men in a trench, which makes sense. Positions that are obscure, some of the accounts say that they weren't even sure where some trenches were and that some trenches consisted of interconnected shell holes rather than proper trenches themselves, so fairly shallow, not permanent positions. You can see how some men in positions like that could be hit by a hurricane bombardment of shells and they get buried alive. And this is what the colonel discovers. So in 1920 there was a proper excavation of the site. 21 bodies were exhumed. 14 of them identified. French soldiers had an identity disc, a dog tag, that they wore usually round their wrist on a little chain. It was made of aluminium and it survived pretty well in the ground and still survives to this day. I've seen battlefield archaeology work where they've found the remains of French soldiers where they find the identity disc and it's in a very good condition and that's after a century since the great war so when this excavation took place in 1920 just four years after these men had been killed 
there would have been the natural decomposition of the bodies without getting too gruesome about that but they may well have found papers if the men were literally buried alive there could have been papers in their pockets and other artifacts found with them to identify them so of the 21 bodies exhumed 14 were positively identified they were taken to what was then a temporary cemetery at Fleury and then they were moved to the main French National Cemetery at Dourmont, which today is in front of the ossuary. Now we've spoken about different French sources that we can use to discover more about this episode. We've looked at war diaries and regimental histories, but there's also the Memoir des Hommes site, which has certificates for every soldier who was killed. And you can go on that and type in an individual name if you're looking up a particular soldier, but you can also go on there with a more in-depth bit of research and put in a unit. There's drop-down selections of different types of units, so you can find the 137th, pop that into the research box as the unit, and then select a date, and then it comes up with a list of casualties. And that's also linked to the equivalent of the French Commonwealth Wargraves Commission site, which is the archive of those who have known graves in French cemeteries, and you can do a similar thing there. So when we look at that site, we discover that of the men killed in the main action on the 12th of June 1916, when the 137th were overrun, and that's most likely the date in which the incident of the Trench of Bayonets took place, there are over 30 men from the 137th buried in the French National Cemetery at Douaumont, most of them in the same plot of the cemetery. When we look at Memoir des Hommes, that lists all of them, with the Wargraves website, the Sepulture de Guerre site, that only lists those with a known grave. The missing, who are not identified, that are buried in unknown graves or still buried on the battlefield, there's no Meningate or Thiepval for them, so they're not listed on that site. The Memoir des Hommes lists them all, and that gives us an insight into the true scale of the casualties for that action. And when we look at that, we discover that on the 12th of June 1916, over 230 men from the 137th Regiment were killed in action. And on the days either side of it, you're talking tens of casualties on those days. So it's clear that the main action which cost the majority of the casualties was in that fighting on the 12th of June 1916. So when we look at those names, for example, we find on Memoir des Hommes, Lieutenant de Canlis, who was the officer who, alongside Polymer, was defending those positions that were overrun and he fell riddled with bullets. He's listed on the Memoir des Hommes site as killed in action, but there's no trace of him on Sepulture de Guerre because he has no known grave. But coming back to the story of the men, the colonels found the burials, the excavations begin. I have postcards from about 1919 showing a line of bayonets in a rough bit of ground and what you see already, if they're publishing postcards about it, the story of the Trench of Bayonets is building up momentum. And it becomes a place that the early visitors to the battlefields at Verdun begin to go to. And then a desire builds to somehow permanently commemorate this with a memorial. And an American banking millionaire, George T. Rand, hears the story. Now, there isn't much known about George Rand. I've tried and can't really find out a huge amount of information about him, but there's a really good account of what led him to be involved in this project and what happened to him and why he wasn't there when it was unveiled in 
of all things, the Gloucestershire Echo, a British newspaper. One day, Mr Rand, an American who visited this spot, which came to be known as the Trench of Bayonets, was much impressed by the spectacle of bayonets and helmets protruding from the earth and concluded that a monument should be erected to commemorate the heroism of the French soldiers. And for this purpose, he deposited 500,000 francs at the American embassy. Afterwards, proceeding to England by aeroplane, Mr Rand was killed on landing. His idea of erecting a memorial was carried out. So having found himself in Verdun and what he was doing in Verdun at that time, I don't know, he almost on a whim took half a million francs, left them with the American embassy in Paris, flew to Britain and crashed at Croydon Aerodrome, being instantly killed. So he would never see the project that he'd made possible, really, which was a great tragedy in its own right. So the money enabled a French architect to step in, design this modernist temple, as we described it, that was built over the trench, because what had already begun to happen there is that gruesome souvenir hunters had already moved in and started to steal some of the bayonets. And the Gloucestershire Echo reports how some of those were then put back when this memorial was constructed in 1919-20. So it was going on, really, at the same kind of time as the excavations to uncover the dead and identify the dead who were found in this trench were taking place as well. And what it meant from a kind of practical point of view is that this idea of battalions and companies and even sections of men being buried in the trench and here forever marked in their grave was not really true because the dead, the identified dead, had already been removed and reburied at Dormont. And what it meant was the unknowns, which included an unknown lieutenant, whoever that may be amongst a long list of missing officers from this action, they were the ones who would remain behind here at the Trench of Bayonets. The unknowns were marked by crosses underneath the cover of the concrete shelter. There were bayonets in place. I can remember seeing some when I first went there in 1987. I don't believe there are any there today. But it is a remarkable place to visit as you walk in there is a legend that's carved into the concrete entrance which reads to the memory of the French soldiers who sleep standing rifle in hand in this trench and you walk through that concrete entranceway which wouldn't really be out of place in a sci-fi movie up towards that shelter that temple-like structure up to and around you can walk all the way around it look down through the columns the concrete columns into the the rough earth area where the trench had been, where we see the crosses and once saw the remains of the bayonets. I've been there many times and I can remember the reaction I felt the first time I went was kind of curious. It felt a little bit gruesome in some respects that this trench had been preserved by this strange looking concrete structure over the top of it. But yet I suppose what it stood for was a wider symbolism a wider acceptance of the losses at Verdun in 1916, with so many hundreds of thousands of Frenchmen killed and wounded and missing, it was difficult really to understand that, to comprehend it. Maybe episodes like this made it not easier to swallow, but easier to understand and accept. Because it felt, I think, to many French people, even a generation later, with the approach of another war, then the war itself and the Vichy government, 
It felt like a whole generation had somehow disappeared at Verdun, and the symbolism of monuments like this and down the road at Dormont to act as a kind of warning to never do this again had seemingly been ignored. And when this memorial went up in that barren landscape, devoid of any vegetation, smashed to pieces by the four years of war, and particularly the events here in 1916, it would have stood out on that battlefield, on that landscape. The Dormont ossuary had not yet been constructed. There were cemeteries being built. Of course, the forts were there and the bunkers and the command posts. But this drew the attention of that wave after wave of battlefield visitors and tourists that came to Verdun in that interwar period. We've heard recently on the podcast just how many people came to eat, for example, during that period. And it's easy to think that that was the only place where this kind of pilgrimage tourism was taking place. But here at Verdun, this was on a circuit that was coming out from Paris up onto areas near to the Chemin des Dames and in the Champagne and then across to Verdun. So probably hundreds of thousands of battlefield visitors came to this site in that interwar period of the 1920s and 30s. And when France fell in 1940, German soldiers visited these sites as well. This was their father's war. These were places not unknown to them. And there are a lot of photographs of German troops visiting the ossuary and visiting the Trench of Bayonets. The story of the trench came back into focus again during the Great War centenary. It's a footnote in the story of the Battle of Verdun. It's a few days in a battle of 300 days, and it's one regiment on one part of that battlefield. But I think it stands for so much more. And recently I picked up some images and photographs of a French battlefield tour, French army battlefield tour, at the Trench of Bayonet site sometime in the early 20s. The concrete structure is there, so it's after that's been built. And there's a group of soldiers standing there, and one of them is looking rather mournfully across that part of the battlefield. And I wonder, was he a veteran of the 137th? Had he fought there? Was he only half listening to the words of the senior French officers who were telling them about the bigger scale of operations that had unfolded on that part of the Verdun battlefield? In his mind's eye, was he watching Bavarian troops coming through the early morning mist as they advanced up the slopes towards those company positions? Whatever was passing through his mind had made him stop and think, pause and reflect on his part of the old front line. You've been listening to an episode of The Old Front Line with me, military historian Paul Reed. You can follow me on Twitter at Somcor. You can follow the podcast at Old Frontline Pod. Check out the website at oldfrontline.co.uk where you'll find lots of podcast extras and photographs and links to books that are mentioned in the podcast. And if you feel like supporting us, you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash oldfrontline, or support us on Buy Me A Coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash oldfrontline. Links to all of these are on our website. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon.